Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. Welcome to our first show of the new year. We can now have 2020 hindsight. You see what I did there? Uh, Tons to discuss (laughs) with the Texans doing Texans things to end the season. The Rockets with all kinds of fascinating storylines after four games. And hey, UT Sippers making some news over the weekend too. Plus we hit on some important Houston sports anniversaries this week. Joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie, longtime journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, I can already feel the good vibes of a new year in Houston sports. Any idea which teams got me in a bubbly champagne mood? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. In this case, hindsight being 2020 is a good thing. You know, most of the time it's not. But for this year of 2020, it can be as far out of sight in hindsight as it wants to be we'll we'll gladly take it robert yeah we're not start with the texas the team that's got me in the bubbly mood the champagne bubbly the rockets and the one thing steven the rockets haven't had since james harden's been in town is a big three plenty of big twos but no big threes john wall averaging 25 points seven and a half assists after two games there's your two pretty obvious two harden averaging 37 points 11 assists after three games and through four games Christian Wood is averaging 24 points and 11 rebounds. Almost that much anyway. He's really close to 24 points, 11 rebounds. It's kind of a big three, Stephen. Do you think Harden maybe rethinking his trade demand? Well, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, Robert, and and I I keep going back to the early 90s when Akeem Olajuwon was so outspoken about being traded. I I mean, you know, the, the one thing we can say about James Harden is he refuses to talk about it. He's not talking about it through the media. He, he's not saying anything really to anybody that, you know, at least that's getting out publicly about this whole thing. Hakeem was pretty specific. He wanted to be traded. He blasted the Rockets owner. And and just as this thing goes on, I, I was telling a, a friend of mine earlier today, because he just, he wants, I think like most of us, he, he really wants James out of town. And I said, well, here's the thing. As long as he continues to help the Rockets and and play well, and he's not a cancer in the locker room. He's not blasting anybody in the press. The Rockets don't really need to be in that much of a hurry. And as we know, Hakeem did not get traded. He ended up winning two championships with the Rockets a couple of years after all that. So, you know, while the James Harden saga continues to go on, and it may go on for a while longer, you just you just never know how these things are going to play out. You wonder if uh, Dream, I hadn't even thought about this. You made me think about it. You think Dream's... Maybe had a conversation with Harden about this stuff. They've got to have each other's number, right? Yeah, well, I'm sure they do. Uh, they certainly know each other. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because, like I said, the, the total contrast in the way they both went about it. You know, if if one would think, especially in today's media, you know, he didn't have social media back in the early 90s. But if James Harden started doing what Akeem did, he probably would have been out of here by now, something tells me. Maybe we can help James refine his Islamic roots. Is that possible? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Akeem can uh, give him some uh, good religious teaching or something. But getting back to Christian Wood, though, and I and I just I, I really like the fact that although it's been brief, when when Wood and Harden are on the on the floor, I, I just I can't wait to see more of that. If if James is still going to be here, then we might as well make the most of it. And him and Christian Wood together, and, and we've been talking about Christian Wood every podcast since almost since he's come to the Rockets, Robert. And I've got a feeling we're going to keep talking about him every time, because if he keeps doing great things, we're going to keep talking about him 
because we need all the great things we can get in Houston sports right now. And Christian Wood is definitely one of them. Oh, my goodness. Well, as of Sunday, he's averaging the exact same number of points as LeBron James, and he's averaging more points than Giannis. I know it's early, but still pretty remarkable. And, Stephen, let's remember that while Wood has been in the NBA for a few years, he's played in basically just a season and a half worth of games. Remember how excited we were when Yao Ming first averaged 25 and 10? That was four full seasons into his career. Wood has maybe got about 130 games so far. Yeah, Wood is, I, I think there's there's definitely upside to Wood's game, and I think you're going to see it a lot quicker. And I believe it was P.J. Tucker who was quoted as saying, if Christian Wood can figure it out on the defensive end, he's going to be a great player. And that is absolutely true, Robert. I mean, it, the one thing about his game that he definitely needs to work on, and I think he is in, in fits and starts, is playing better defense. But you can't criticize him too much on the offensive end. Now, he did get into foul trouble the other day against the Kings. But, I mean, that's going to happen every once in a while as long as it doesn't become a habit. But, man, I just love the game that Christian Wood is playing with the Rockets right now. You led me right into it beautifully because I was seeing where Rockets Twitter really highly critical of Christian Wood's defense during the second Kings game. And, you know, there's a couple of things that, you know, I thought were not that great either. But I want to point a couple of things out about the kid because, you know, good moments and bad moments. We got to keep in mind this guy uh, is a big guy and a big guy in the NBA takes a while to develop offensively and defensively. You notice it in somebody like Phoenix's DeAndre Ayton, who took about two years before he went from bad defensively to good defensively. And now Ayton is a guy that you would say is a good defensive player. Wood faced his two worst matchups physically to start the season. Nurkic and Jokic are two guys that can push and use their weight to push him around a little bit. They're old school bigs who could body him down to the basket, which is something he's not going to see of a, a lot in the NBA. And also like every Rockets player, every single one of them, he's learning a whole new team and coach with practically no training camp, Steven, and guys coming in and out of practice with COVID protocol. While I don't think, you know, his block shots are necessarily a great, well, block shots are never that great of a metric for defense. It's still impressive that, you know, through four games, he's second in the NBA in blocks. Yeah, and that's kind of a hidden stat. I, I wouldn't have thought that, Robert, unless you hadn't brought it up. But, and, and yeah, to be fair, I mean, you, you I, that's exactly what I was going to say is Christian Wood is still trying to figure it all out. And, and really, the whole Rockets team is still trying to figure it out defensively and even offensively, you know, when they get in those little slumps every now and then. But it just with, with the way this season has started out in the crazy way that it has, I, I really like the the energy, the spark of this Rockets team with the new faces. You talked about it a couple weeks ago, Robert, with some of these younger guys and the kind of energy they bring. Well, you know, Christian Wood's bringing his own kind of energy and just, you know, for however long James is going to be here, if he comes in and still does well and uh, the Rockets keep winning because they, they really can't afford to get into too many slumps with the Western Conference being the way it is, then we'll, we'll at least have something to celebrate for a little while here in Houston. It's kind of a yin and yang with the guys that the Rockets play because you got Christian Wood who just, he's kind of cool. He seems very, you know, the way he moves and the way he reacts it, it seems slow, but he, he gets there. Same thing with James Harden. We, we see James Harden is kind of this coolish guy. And the opposite, you've got all the new guys with Tate 
and John Wall and Waba. And I mean, they're, those guys are all over the place. Sterling Brown. And you just got to talk about John Wall for a second because 50 points in his first two games after a two-year layoff, which is a really interesting stat because, Stephen, I, I want to ask you this trivia question. Who was the last player to do that? The last player to score 50 points in his first two games after a two-year NBA layoff. Any ideas? You know, I think I saw that question somewhere, and now it's escaped me. I, I think I did see that. Well, the answer, like every good answer in the NBA – is Michael Jeffrey Jordan. This was in 2001 with the Wizards where he did that. And that's good company to keep. And, you know, they're the Wizards connection there too. Yeah, and it wasn't with the Bulls. That's that's the funny thing. I might have said, you know, Michael Jordan in his championship years. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. He did it with the Wizards and then kind of that indirect connection there with, with John Wall. But And John Wall has something to prove. And so does DeMarcus Cousins. And and really, you know, Christian Wood does too because he he was, uh, you know, he was on a Detroit Pistons team that he wasn't really playing much until I think toward the end of the season, and then he kind of settled in. But I I just think it's it's an interesting mix that the Rockets have of personalities and and the thing that you know we, we're not seeing so much of Robert and we we talked about this so much last season. You don't see a lot of the Rockets just standing around waiting for things to happen. I mean they're they're at least trying to create some things on offense. And occasionally on defense, I, I just I like their movement and I like the energy and I just like the the different mix of personalities that this team has. Now, how they're going to mesh over the course of the whole season remains to be seen. But uh, you got to like what you what you have so far, considering the small sample size of some of these guys that didn't even play this whole season yet. I'll get back to John Wall in a bit. But before I go any further, I, I got a big announcement to make, Stephen. In the last month. Oh, I've fallen totally, completely, and fully in love. Will you marry me, Jay Sean Tate? You're giving me all the feels, man. Yeah, that man crush for Jay Sean Tate, huh? I, yeah, and you talked about uh, talk about energy. I mean, he really was providing the energy the first couple of games he was in there and played so many minutes. But I like Dejounte Tate. I, I think he's he's going to be a, a good developing young player hopefully for the Rockets for the next several years. Yeah, Steven Silas says he really trusts Jayshon Tate. He said, quote, he's everywhere. He plays beyond his years. He cuts when he's supposed to cut. He rebounds when he's supposed to rebound. He's smart. He's really smart, especially on the defensive end. I mean, that's uh, that's some good stuff. I think Steven Silas might be fighting me for him. We might, be, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. we might have a little a triangle here going on. Yeah, and he's the coach, so he's got the inside track. He's spending more time with him than you are, Robert. You better get busy, buddy. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, I want to go back to John Wall for, for a second because the one thing that you know just blows me away is he looks as good as I've ever seen him look as an NBA player. I heard Buddy Heald say the same thing when he faced him the other night. And l let me just throw this at you, Stephen. I mean, a lot of the chatter, a lot of the buzz on Twitter is – Hey, Raphael Stone, Raphael Stone. I'm going to mess up his name like everybody else, but yeah. uh, he is doing an incredible job because the dominoes look to have fallen beautifully for the Rockets here. And, and you got to give him credit for making this John Wall trade and not only getting John Wall, but getting a first round pick, although it's a little bit down the road. He also, you know, signs Tate. He also picks up Sterling Brown. Uh, he also gets Christian Wood. I mean, it just boom, boom, boom. In order, 
he's knocking them down one at a time. And I mean, this is all coming together so beautifully. And the reason we're even discussing the fact that James Harden could be changing his mind is what Rafael Stone did in the offseason. Well, and that's what's so puzzling about this whole James Harden thing, Robert, is that, I mean, wouldn't you want to at least wait and see what this new GM, you know, James obviously knows Rafael. He's been in the organization for quite a while. But I guess that's the thing I kept questioning is, don't you want to give the new coach and GM a shot? You know, at least give it one season. You had Russell Westbrook for an entire season. Why don't you give it an entire season with this crew, see how things go, and you never know. I mean, with the players you just talked about, Things are, are starting to mesh slowly, but surely for the Rockets, if if they could just maintain consistency and not have too many guys go in and out all the time, whether it's with injuries, with COVID, I mean, who knows what this team could do, but yeah, you got to at least give it a chance. And that's just been the most puzzling thing about this whole James Harden situation. And as I said, uh, the Rockets are obviously in no hurry to deal him. If, there, if there's going to be a deal, it's going to be the right one. So We'll just see how things go, and maybe James will either change his mind or just stop talking about it so much if the Rockets keep winning. Well, you keep saying James keeps talking. No, James hasn't been talking about it. James has been towing the company line the last week. No, I'm talking about the, the rest of us is what I meant. The, the right, we, we keep talking about it, the, the whole topic. Yeah, I thought you meant James, but yeah, he's been quiet, and that's the other thing that I've noticed. And uh, let me just bring this up about, uh, about Steven Silas. Here are a couple of numbers worth keeping an eye on because it may be the biggest noticeable difference between what we saw from D'Antoni last year and Coach Silas this year. Last year, the Rockets were ranked 24th in the NBA in three-point percentage and ranked 22nd in the NBA in overall field goal percentage. In other words, they shot a lot of threes and they weren't very good at shooting them, which meant more rebounds for a very poor rebounding team. Meanwhile, this year, they ranked 19th in three-point percentage, so down from 24th, and rank fourth in overall field goal percentage. So how does that happen? Steven, this is very simple. They've gone from rank number one in the NBA in three-pointers taken. I'm, I'm talking about th- number one in three-pointers right. taken to now they're ranked 11, which is, I think, a Big deal, and that's the difference between the the two coaching styles of Silas and D'Antoni. And you know what? I'm not all that upset about that stat, Robert, just because if there is one thing I've been critical of the Rockets for for the last several years is the fact that they take so many three point shots, and 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 so many of them are just not good shots. They're they, it, it, I think it's shot selection. That's what it's much boiling down to. And they're driving to the hoop more. They're starting to do. A, I think we pointed this out a few weeks ago at least a little bit more of the mid-range jumpers that have obviously been missing from Dan Tony. I, I just think it's a more disciplined style. Yeah, they're still going to put up threes. And, you know, some of these guys they brought in are good shooters. But I think a lot of it is the shot selection is so much better than it has been in the past several years. I mean, you don't have Russell Westbrook there, so that, that's got to make a difference in that particular stat. Yeah, if you look at the three-point shooting this year, uh, the one thing that sticks out so far Sterling Brown, we mentioned his name. He's shooting 60%. That's not going to continue, but that sure is nice. No. Uh, PJ Tucker is shooting 50%, but he's not shooting a lot. You know, he's really, you know, they haven't designed the offense as much to get him those corner threes that he was getting. But, you know, in a way, it's 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 almost a positive thing. He's also, uh, the minutes are a little bit down, which is good too. And also, James Harden, now, very small sample size so far because, 
you know, he's, he's only played in three games, but he's shooting 44, 45.5% from three, Steven. I mean, that's very above his numbers and he usually doesn't get, get off to that hot of a start either. Yeah. And you know, some of these numbers are going to go down, but it, at least it, if the shot selection continues to be wise and uh, you know, the, the Rockets are going to make those shares of the shots, then that that's really all we need. And I just I really like the philosophy that Steven Salas is putting in place of a more disciplined style of play. You know, I asked this question of Houston Sports Talk Twitter because we were just talking about D'Antoni and Maury and how things have changed over with the Rockets. This week I said to our Houston Sports Talk Twitter audience, which Houston executive were you most sad about losing in 2020? This is a good list because you got A.J. Hinch, Jeff Luno, Mike D'Antoni, and Daryl Morey. Let me ask you, Stephen, which one are you saddest to uh, to see go? Well, honestly, I'd, I'd have to say A.J. Hinch just because of the fact that uh, he did give the Astros a World Series, tainted though it would be. And I, I just think, you know, from an overall standpoint, A.J. was a good guy. The, the biggest mistake he made, he just didn't step up when he should have and put a stop to it. I, I would say A.J. Hinch would be, he'd be my pick. Houston Sports Talk Twitter agreed with you. 56.1% said AJ, 22.8% said Jeff Luno, Daryl Morey, 21.1%. So Luno barely beats out Morey. Wow. Now that's interesting. That is, uh, I would have thought maybe they'd have been flip-flopped, especially after all that's happened, but uh, obviously not. Nobody said Mike D'Antoni. <laughs> Nobody. Well, and, and that really isn't surprised me. I, you know, look, Mike, he, he got the Rockets into the playoffs. It, it's not like they were a 14-win team. But when you keep getting to the brink and keep getting to the brink, eventually the fans are, are going to start to dislike you a bit, and that's what's happened with him. I want to try to stay positive as we move to the Texans, and I'll, I'll do my best at this. Just I, to start off with, i got to say, in an awful season, Deshaun Watson kept it fun. Very rarely this year did I just want to turn the game off Steven, and just like, where's my bottle of Lexapro? Like, I, I can't watch this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, Robert. And, you know, when we did our year in review show last week in the top fives, uh, you know, one of the lists of uh, success stories, I actually had Deshaun Watson as one of my honorable mentions, even though, I mean, the Texans, you know, they only won four games this year. But Deshaun himself had an incredible year, and he is fun to watch no matter what the team is doing. And look, if there's one thing you can say about the Texans, and certainly it showed again today, we're recording this on Sunday, after the Titans game, at least the Texans went out of the season and made it exciting. Yeah, they're 4-12, and and you're 4-12 and for a reason. But at least it was a good game to watch, Robert. And most of these games, you know, both the Colts games, both the Titans games, several of the other games, at least they were fun to watch. If you're a Texans fan, you just, you know, you kept getting heartache after heartache because they didn't win. So that's something to at least hang your hat on. I don't know. I don't know if it's something to look forward to because you've got a whole new brass that's going to be coming in and you just don't know what style of play it's going to be, what the team's going to look like. But at least, you know, you've got Deshaun. That's that's your hope for the future, as we keep saying, Robert. Yeah, you said four and 12. I'm going to call this uh, four wins, five losses and seven almost wins. Can we add that category? Uh, I'll take it. I mean, I you know, as a fan, I'll take anything I can get, Robert. Um, it, unfortunately, it doesn't give you a playoff spot. But, yeah, it at least sounds better. It sounds better when you say it. 
Yeah. So if you say, okay, they finished four and 12, which is the same as Deshaun's rookie year. Um, you got to also remember in that rookie year, he got hurt. Tom Savage came in, lost eight of the last nine games. It was really boring and awful to watch. So you got, you know, 16 games of Deshaun. He didn't get hurt. That's another positive. Steven Deshaun led the NFL in passing yards. He passes Patrick Mahomes on the last day of the season who sat. So I don't know if you want to give it a asterisk or something like that, but he's the first player to lead in passing yards with 12 or more losses since Jeff George did it for the 97 Raiders. Steven, this feels like the season where Deshaun solidified himself as an elite QB. He's top five for sure. I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody leaving the season and going, hey, if, I, if I'm picking five quarterbacks to start a franchise with or forget start a franchise with to go into next year with, I want Deshaun Watson, right? Absolutely. And can you imagine if the Texans had made the playoffs, you know, and, and maybe even been a top three seed, Deshaun would probably be your MVP with the kind of numbers he's put up this year. I don't think there's any question about that. But even with the just the, the lousy season that the team had, he's got to be in your top five. And he made the Pro Bowl, which, you know, as I said before, was a little surprising to me. But it obviously shows that people around the league even notice that on a 4-12 and team, Deshaun Watson deserves all the props he gets. You know, I said it at the top, Stephen, this game on Sunday, uh, this was as Texans as it Texans get. This is this is very Texans of this whole season, the way it ended, everything. I'm like watching them tie the game, and I thought, all right, how, how can they screw it up? There's still 18 seconds to go. Well, maybe Anthony Weaver can just not leave anybody – deep in the middle of the field and you just give up a, a long pass and put him in. Oh, there it is. He did it. He was able to pull it off. <laughs> yeah. I think I jumped the gun a little bit too. I, when the Texans, you know, after that with 18 seconds, I got, well, looks like we're going to overtime. No, I spoke too quickly. You know, I kept hoping, well, okay, that was 2020. This is 2021. The luck for the Texans has to change, right? It's still the Texans, Robert. Sorry to tell you. It's still the Texans, no matter what year it is. Man, I I just, I think they got to work on this red zone stuff as far as the offense goes. I mean, as good as Deshaun was, and again, this is not about Deshaun, we know. I mean, it's like, of course it's not about him because the, the rest of the guys managed to screw stuff up with penalties and poor offensive line play, and they can't run the football and all that. But they entered the game tied for 22nd in red zone touchdowns with 55.6%. They're bad. They're lower third of the NFL. They fail three times in the red zone in the first half, come away with three field goals. If there's something to point to with the offense going into next year that, you know, there's an opportunity to get better and not just the offensive line in the running game, which are the obvious ones. It's that it's working on the red zone offense. And, you know, I guess that maybe goes hand in hand with having a running game. Well, absolutely it does. I mean, execution is is the name of the game, and you've got to have a good running game, especially when you get, you know, inside the 10, inside the 5. You've, you've got to have that running game to really keep the defense guessing, and the Texans certainly haven't had that. You know, the, the last couple of weeks, David Johnson has looked better than he did before the, you know, for the rest of the season, but it's certainly not even close to what the Texans should do to get a good running game going. And, you know, what's interesting is the Titans – they came into this last game second in the league in uh, red zone efficiency scoring touchdowns. And the Texans, as you said, pretty much near, you know, the bottom. So 
that's going to change next year if the team's going to get more wins. I don't know what else to say about this game because, you know, I just feel like we run through the same stuff, but I will call this a victory because the Texans managed not to give up 328 yards to Derrick Henry and give him the all-time rushing title in the season. <laughs> well, and you know what's funny is at the end of the first quarter, Derrick Henry only had 12 yards rushing. You know, he got a lot of those in the, in the next three quarters. I mean, he caught fire at that. So the fact they even stopped him in the first quarter was interesting, but obviously the rest of the way. Oh, and he fumbled the ball too. That was you know, a bit of a surprise. He, he actually gave the Texans a gift. Too bad they couldn't take advantage of it. That might have been the play of the game right there. But yeah, Derrick Henry was was definitely going to get his yards. That That's for sure. On that fumble, that was one of the best individual defensive efforts I've seen from the Texans this season. Zach Cunningham, <laughs> you know, reaches around, you know, an incredible play where he just reaches around it, does a spin and, and reaches back and knocks the ball loose. And I mean, it, you almost thought it was an accident because, the, boy, the Texans figured out a way to make a great individual play defensively and cause a turnover? What? I almost thought it was uh, T.J. Watt had suddenly uh, morphed onto the Texans that maybe J.J. talked him into it because, you know, T.J. Watt is is something else at uh, punching that ball out. So I <laughs> almost thought T.J. Watt had suddenly made an appearance on the Texans for a brief second. That was pretty interesting, though. So we got to, you know, wait to see, you know, what's going on with the coaching search and the GM search. But I, I wanted to might as well talk a little bit about next year's schedule because we we know next year's schedule now pretty much the Texans schedule is set and it's going to be rough they've got the NFC West which might be the toughest division in the NFL at least this year it is you don't know from year to year but going into next year it's it's going to be no joke to face that NFC West they go to Arizona for the DeAndre Hopkins Bowl and that's a team on the upswing even though they barely missed the playoffs they host the Rams which is no picnic they host Russell Wilson Seahawks uh-oh, that's not good. They host the 49ers. That That's at least a winnable game, very winnable game, the way the 49ers played this year. They weren't the Super Bowl team, Super Bowl hangover, I guess, affecting them. They always have that Super Bowl hangover after the, the team loses, which um, typically happens. And then uh, the Texans have the AFC East, a mixed bag. So you got Buffalo, which Josh Allen, you know, his bills are no fun. Uh, you got Miami for the Laramie Tunsil Bowl. This is an improving team. They're going to have two high picks. I wonder where they're getting these two high picks in the first and second round. Uh, yeah, they're they're going to have the third overall pick in this coming draft. Thank you, Houston Texans. You know, uh, they, they're going to host New England and the Jets, which, you know, that could be two rookie quarterbacks, so maybe not too bad there. The last two games, besides the division games, hosting the Chargers, you know, you face the second-to-last team in your division if you're the second-to-last team, or the other divisions if you're the second-to-last team. Um, but uh, the Browns, they're at the Browns for the other game who, you know, if I got that right, they're, they're the second to last in that division. Um, you know, those games maybe feel winnable, but the Browns, are, 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 that's not the type of team as a third place team that you thought you would get. So that this, this schedule is going to be extremely difficult. Well, it is certainly interesting every year to take a look at the schedule and just see how difficult it will be. And Here's something else to consider, Robert. If the NFL owners decide to have that 17th regular season game, because that's still on the table, then you've got you've got other options to consider. You know, perhaps it could be someone like I, I even heard that maybe the Dallas Cowboys might be a possibility, but that there's another team that could be thrown into the mix if they decide to have an extra regular season game. So that's something to keep an eye on. But yeah, the first thing I saw when the headline with the Texans schedule was the DeAndre Hopkins meeting next year. 
you know a lot of people are going to be looking forward to that, especially DeAndre. Give me, give me, give me the Dallas Cowboys. That sounds like fun to me. I mean, you know, for everybody in Houston, we, we've wanted to face the Cowboys every year. It just seems like it's a natural game that should be on the schedule. But, you know, they, they try to make these balanced schedules, and, and I get it. But that, that would be maybe the way to bring that in, the, the, maybe a, a rivalry game. But I don't know if other teams are going to be able to or other uh, places around the league are going to be able to come up with rivalries like that, you know, for that extra game. You know, the other thing that's going to make things a little bit interesting for the Texans next year reports that Urban Meyer is going to be the new head coach for the Jaguars, meaning he'll team up with Trevor Lawrence in Jacksonville. Doesn't sound like good news for the Texans, but boy, it's going to make the AFC South interesting. Well, it certainly will. And you wonder, you know, what Indianapolis is going to do as Phillip Rivers, you know, he acts like he wants to come back next year, but is he going to? So the AFC South is certainly going to be interesting. The Titans are, you know, they're making waves. You know, the, the Texans had that window. We kept saying it year after year, you know, that window is going to close sooner or later. You know, you, you wonder have the Texans passed up that window because these other teams aren't just laying around letting the Texans walk all over them. So they're, they're getting better every year. I don't know with the Jags, they, they just always seem to find a way to mess up quarterbacks or mess themselves up. So even with urban Meyer, who knows, you know what that could be like? Well, if you're messing up Blaine Gabbert, that's easy to mess up. I didn't think he was good to begin with. I watched him at Missouri. He went to my alma mater. Um, They they really haven't had any quarterbacks that you went, Oh, this guy's going to be the next big thing. And let me just point out that the Titans, you know, everybody thought, oh, Mike Vrabel, great hire. Uh, Ryan Tannehill looks like they got him off the scrap heap and he's a good, you know, Ryan Tannehill is still Ryan Tannehill. That Titan team, if you're watching that game today, I just thought, man, they're they're not that, they're Derrick Henry and that's it. And these running backs have short windows. That's a team down the road that, you know, I, I got to see more from them to, to believe that they're going to be, competing on the high end of the AFC South like they have been. Um, But the Colts, if they get a quarterback and the Jags, you know, with Trevor Lawrence, it's going to be tough. I mean, it's going to be real, real tough. But you still have Deshaun Watson. And Deshaun Watson, as of this moment, is still the best quarterback uh, in the AFC South. And and I'm sorry, Trevor Lawrence, but you're going to have to show me something. And I don't think he just walks into the NFL and and is competing on Deshaun Watson's level. I certainly don't either. Uh, and yeah, if you've got Deshaun and you get yourself a running game and even a decent offensive line that can take care of things, then you have to feel good at least for the next few years where the Texans are. And you're right about the Titans. I mean, you saw some of the offensive lapses that they had throughout this game, uh, you know, Derrick Henry aside. And getting back to the Titans real quickly, Robert, uh, even though they're part of the enemy now, you got some former Texans on there. It was good to see Dave Quisenberry out there. They're starting left tackle. You also saw Ben Jones briefly. And, oh, yeah, I didn't even know this guy was still in the league. Brooks Reed is with the Titans. Yeah, didn't appreciate you sacking Deshaun Watson, Brooks. But I, I guess, you know, it's good that you're still in the league anyway. I had to laugh at Rich Gannon when he called Brooks Reed Deshaun's old teammate, getting his old teammate. I'm like, dude, Brooks Reed – he was back with the Texans <laughs> in the Gary Kubiak era. Uh, um, I was going to say it was years ago. <laughs> yeah. Deshaun and him have literally no relationship that I, I would think of it. You know, you speak about urban Meyer as we have been. And if he's going to Jacksonville, guess where he ain't going. And Tom Herman, 
was fired this weekend. The Longhorns hire Alabama offensive coordinator Steve Skarkisian. Stephen, you covered and followed a lot of Longhorn football over the years. What did you think of this? Well, I thought it was an interesting move. I mean, it certainly was no surprise that Tom Herman got fired, just the way this whole thing was handled. I mean, even even a few weeks ago when Athletic Director Chris Del Conte came out with a statement, quote-unquote, backing Tom Herman, it, it, it was about the weakest backing of a coach that I've ever seen in a statement when instead of just not saying anything at all, you know, it, it was a very lukewarm at best. So that didn't surprise me. The Steve Sarkeesian hire, what did, it did surprise me. Although, you know, it's just kind of like the Patriots way. When you do, you, you start rating Alabama for their assistant coaches because they're at Alabama, because they're with Nick Saban, and maybe they can spend some magic. If you can't get Nick Saban, well, let's go for some of his assistants. I mean, that's what the NFL teams tried to do with the Patriots coaches. And I think that's what Texas is doing with Steve Sarkeesian. I mean, as a head coach, he he doesn't wow you with his statistics. It's like, oh, my gosh, this guy, he could be another Nick Saban, at least not in my mind. He was 47 and 35 in his years as head coach at Washington and USC. He He has battled back from some personal difficulties, from alcoholism and uh, abuse, and he's come back from that. So he's a good story, but again, I just he's going to have to prove himself as a head coach and doing it at the University of Texas where, Robert, quite honestly, the fan base and, and the, the school brass are never happy unless they're undefeated every year and winning the national championship. So that's, that's what Steve Sarkeesian is going to be facing. Yeah, you mentioned his record at the two schools that he has had a head coaching job previously with Washington and USC. At those two schools, he never won 10 games. He never won a conference championship. He never even won a division title. After USC, he briefly goes to Alabama. Then he was the offensive coordinator for the Falcons, taking over for Kyle Shanahan, ex-Texans coach, who left to go coach the 49ers. Kyle Shanahan never remembers that job that he did there, taking him to the Super Bowl in Atlanta with his offense. The offense dropped under Sarkeesian from 33.8 points to 22.1 points in 2017. So Sarkeesian, not exactly, you know, rolling things along, you know, when he gets a a job in the NFL as an OC and, and a great setup. The next year, they bumped it back up to 25.9 points per game, but he was fired after that season. Really the only major success that he's had over the last decade between two head coaching jobs and assistant NFL job was that time at Alabama under... You know, Saban and, and God, Stephen, we've seen it so many times. Saban and Belichick, just because you coach under them, it, it just hasn't led to success anywhere with anybody. Maybe Brian Flores with the Dolphins. Can you, is there anybody that I'm missing at Alabama that's gone on and, and done a fantastic job? Yeah, not really. I mean, it just again, it's it's like they think they can get some of that fairy dust that maybe got sprinkled on them a little bit and carry it over to the next team. And, uh, you know, they're they're buying out Tom Herman. Tom Herman's not going to be hurting. He's going to get at least $15 million, probably more than that, because most of his assistants aren't going to be retained. So he's supposed to get almost $20 million, I think, if they're not. So Tom Herman, you know, they're, they're buying out Tom Herman quite a big contract. And now you're going to pay Steve Sarkeesian quite a bit to come in. I mean, obviously money is no object to these guys, but they, they just – if there's one thing I have to say about the University of Texas brass and 
the, the boosters. And it was this way even when Daryl Royal was coaching. There, there's just I, I hate to call them Snobville or anything like that, but that's just what they are. You know, Texas A&M in 2016, they had a chance to hire Tom Herman. They decided to give Kevin Sumlin another year. Yeah, it didn't work out, but guess who they got? Jimbo Fisher. And while, you know, we'll have to see beyond whether this season is a fluke or not, he got them the Orange Bowl this year. So Texas A&M is beating Texas, and they're not even playing on the field, Robert. I want to borrow something that I saw from Brian McTaggart, something he said on social media after Tom Herman got the axe. And Brian McTaggart, keep in mind, he's a Cougar. This guy's a UH Cougar, former That's right. Former uh, guy with the Houston Chronicle. He's with MLB. Uh, writes writes about the Astros, of course. He's been on uh, the Houston Sports Talk podcast with us a few times. Brian McTaggart said, Kevin Sumlin, Tom Herman, Art Bryles. Maybe the grass isn't always greener. You might want to think about staying at U, U of H. You know, it's funny because I thought the very same thing, Robert. I, I think it was last week. It was before Tom Herman got fired. I, I started thinking because this whole saga has been playing out for the last several months when they were talking about Urban Meyer possibly replacing Tom Herman. And I thought about that very thing. It's like, you know, you, you want to think U of H is a stepping stone. Well, a stepping stone to what? You you get the job at the dream school. You know, Steve Sarkeesian saying the same thing that most coaches around the country are saying. How great that being the head coach at Texas would be until you get there. And then you find out that uh, there's probably more pressure than you can really handle, especially if you don't win. So, yeah, maybe some of these guys might want to consider staying at U of H a little bit longer, especially if they're having success. Okay, next I've got three major Houston sports happening on this exact date. January 3rd, as you and I are talking, Stephen, if we go back 38 years to 1983, this was the day Houston Post reporter Thomas Bonk started calling the Houston Cougar basketball team what term, Stephen? I slam a jamma. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It was on this date. Um, but he was the one who coined the phrase. Uh, yeah, you can't get much better than that. Was there a better nickname for a team in college sports? I mean, I can't think of any better nickname than Fislam. Well, it just fits. I mean, it, it fits. And you're talking about a college fraternity of players, Fislam a jamma. I mean, it's just the, the style of play the Cougars had. I mean, there couldn't be a more perfect nickname if you tried. I'd, I'd be eager to ask him. And maybe you know this, Robert, because I, I wasn't in Houston at that point. So maybe you knew Thomas or, or maybe just knew how it started, how he came up with the name. There was an article that I'm trying to remember what the uh, what, what the impetus was for. I mean, I didn't know Thomas Bach. I mean, he was way, 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 way before my time. But, right, right. But that's a, it's a, it's an amazing nickname and uh, got to give the props to, to him. His, his name uh, connect, and connection with that, you can't. You know, you can't bring it up enough because it's a really an incredible uh, turn of events that, that they get that name. And, and I think that helped immortalize the team as well. Meanwhile, for the current Houston Cougar basketball team, it was a bad week. It was a bad week for the guys. They had made it all the way to fifth in the polls. First time they had got to the top five since 1984, since five slamma jamma. They had a one point loss to Tulsa. Very rough outing. Then on Sunday... They announced guard Caleb Mills is stepping away from the program for the time being for personal reasons. No other explanation, but Steven, he was second team all conference last year. Uh, he hasn't been the, quite the same this year. 
His average dropped over three points. His minutes are down a little bit. I don't know what's going on, but they need Caleb. If they're going to make a run in the tourney, a big run like the the stuff that we're talking about, possibly Final Four, they need Caleb Mills to get it done. I mean, they, the defense and everything is great, but Caleb's Mills, Caleb Mills can create his own shot. Yeah, that is a shame, and you're right. He hasn't been playing well all year, and you just you just hope everything's okay. I mean, we don't know all the details, but first and foremost, you just want the young man to be okay and get through whatever he's he's dealing with. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they have some bright young talent. Traymond Mark is is a good looking player, you know. But they just they need that that real big person, that that big player to make the big plays, the kind of plays that Caleb Mills could make. So it's going to be interesting to see how that affects the team throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, they still got some guys. They still got some guys. No no question about it. But Mills helps a lot because he creates his own shot. He's somebody that can get you that basket in a pinch. Um, also on this date, January 3rd, 1993. January 3rd, 1993. Steven, any idea what happened on that date? Yeah, there were two things that happened that day, Robert. My son, we we brought my son home from the hospital because he was born on New Year's Day that year. And that was the day that the Houston Oilers embarrassed us all to the point where we still talk about it against the Buffalo Bills. And let me tell you, the only reason that I didn't break any televisions or windows in our house, and I probably would have been divorced by my wife if I had, was because that was the day we brought our son home. And I was at least somewhat preoccupied with him. It took at least a little bit of the sting out of that loss, but not much, Robert, because that that's about as embarrassing as it can get. I was going to say, did it keep you up at night? But obviously, uh, you were going to yeah, be up at night yeah, anyway. I was up at night, but for a totally <laughs> different reason. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> if you look on Wikipedia and you type in the comeback, you will find the summary of the Bills coming back from 35-3 to against the Oilers. To the present day, it remains the largest comeback in NFL history. Just type in the comeback, Stephen. How can it not? How can it not? I mean, even the, I guess even the uh, Patriots coming back on the Falcons in the Super Bowl hasn't overtaken that yet. But yeah, how can it not? That That just... There is no way, and, and I think the saddest thing of all is the players probably felt that way too. <laughs> and that's just not something you can afford to have happen. When the guys on the field think the game's over, that's a very dangerous thing to do. It's been so busy over the last few months, I haven't had time to give the listeners a throwback Thursday. This Thursday, you're going to hear a conversation I had with the radio voice of the Houston Oilers back in 1993, Tom Franklin, regular on the show. He's going to look back at his most vivid memories from the comeback. He was even on the plane coming back to Houston. So you're going to want to hear that conversation. He was with the players. So that's, that's going to be fun. Uh, The next major Houston sports happening uh, that happened on this day is a happy one. We got, we're going to move from the sad stuff to the happy stuff on this date, January the 3rd, 1962, 59 years ago. Ground was broken for the Houston Astrodome. And Stephen, speaking of the Astrodome, let me mention two other anniversaries coming up this week. This Thursday is the 43rd anniversary of the original Houston Oilers pep rally in the Dome. And Wednesday is the 42nd anniversary 
of the second Oiler Pep rally. Let's get a few goosebumps right now and listen back to my conversation with the guys who were there. We'll hear from the Oilers quarterback, Dan Pastorini. Then you're going to hear from Hall of Famer Elvin Bethay. And finally, cornerback Vernon Perry. What people don't understand, sure, they saw the, the end result with all the people in the Astrodome. But when we walked through the airport at Intercontinental, there was an aisle wave about four feet where we just walked down the, the aisles. People were five and ten deep in the terminal. The buses were outside, and we drove outside. People were parked along JFK Boulevard going into the airport, all the way down JFK Boulevard, all the way down the Beltway, all the way down 45. There wasn't a car going in either direction, with the exception of our motorcade of two buses and a couple limos and a police motorcade. And there had to be 300 to 400,000 people out there on the streets honking their horns and, and cheering us going down the freeways both years. In 79, the, the people in the Dome, I think, were about 30,000 more than, than original in 1978. I mean, there's no words here that could express that, that feeling that we had coming back after losing to Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, coming back not knowing that we were – where they told us to leave our cars at the airport. They were going to take us on bus. We had no idea. And when we came into the Dome, uh, well, even before we got to the Dome, people that were at the airport, the, the, the lines were long, horns were blowing, lights were flashing. And when we got to the Dome, and here's, what, 60,000 people standing up at the rafters. And many people said, what's the greatest time you ever had, or the greatest thrill? I said, the 1978 and 79 years we came. Best best year I've ever had. I still remember that. That's the best thing that ever happened to me. I had the Hall of Fame and all that, but just to seeing the people there, you're talking about 60,000 plus people, and you're, you're a losing team. You lost lost the game. Just think what would have happened if we'd won the game. And, uh, as the world of the pilot said, we wouldn't have been able to land, land the plane in Houston. It, it, it was the greatest thrill of my life. And even today, I see people that were there and mother, grandmothers and of young guys, the people that I meet, and they said they want to know about the old Oilers, and said he had to been there. <laughs> I mean, that place was jam packed, and I can remember Earl Cameron getting off. I think he was riding on a motorcycle, and Bazia, I think he rode a horse or something. But man, it was an experience. That's why I say, man, a kid leaving Canada, coming to a place like Houston, man, I'm still in shock. Uh, man, I couldn't believe that this was the love that you got playing for a team in Houston, man. Uh, when I said I was going to be a, a movie star, man, that couldn't be the feeling that I had when we got back to Houston and saw all those folks in the, in the, in the dome, man. I mean, they were everywhere, man. Love, man. I'm telling you, man, it's hard to just to say how it felt, man, because it was one feeling that I would never, never forget. And just, you know, we lost the game, but we won. The, we won, though. We won. We won the crowd. We won the, the fans. And they loved us, man. And they knew what kind of Houston all the team we were. And man, I tell you something, you can't express or go back and just tell how you really feel because, man, it was a feeling that you would, it's, it's, it's in your heart forever. I can't say it better than that, Stephen. Boy, I can't either. And I tell you what, Elvin Thay said exactly what I was thinking 
imagine what would have been like if they had won those two games. You know, the first year when they lost to Pittsburgh, it wasn't even close, Robert. The final score was 34 to 5. They mustered a safety and a field goal. That's all they got. The next year was 27 to 13, and that was the Mike Renfro no catch game, of course. But, you know, they lost again. There were more people in that second pep rally than there were at the first one. I mean, that's that's what was most incredible to me is that you have two years in a row where the team lost, and yet the fans turned out as if they'd won the Super Bowl. And and I'm I'm telling you, I've never seen anything like it since, and I don't think you ever will. I, I just don't – you know, the connection with the players and fans is – it's still there, but it's different, Robert, and I think you know. I, I don't think you'll ever see something like that again. Certainly, when you talk about the losing aspect – and that many people turning out to welcome their team. Vernon Perry said something there towards the end that just, it, it still, it chokes me up when I listen back to it. You could hear him getting a little bit choked up as he was talking about. He, yeah. he said, but we won. <laughs> you know, we, we did win. You know, it, it, it was a win because we won the city. And I mean, you just can't, express to anybody like Elvin Bethay said, you can't express to anybody that wasn't here and didn't experience it. What it was like, you can't explain it. You, like he said, you just had to be there. Yeah, you, you absolutely had to be there. And I was in high school when that was going on and I wasn't there in person, but of course it was on television and they even carried it on the radio. I mean, it was such a big deal that the Oilers' flagship station, which, believe it or not, was 610, K-I-L-T. They called it just Kilt 610 back then. They even had – they were broadcasting live from there. So they were basically doing a you know play-by-play of what was going on in the pep rally. So I was glued to my radio listening to that both years. And, of course, the first year was Bum Phillips talking about how he was – they were – you know, the first year they knocked on the door. Second year they beat on the door. Next year they're going to kick the SOB in. Well, it didn't happen. But you still remember that line if you were there or were a part of it. Yeah, just an, it's an incredible scene. And I always bring this up because I think this is so important to think about. This was not a team that just lost the Super Bowl. Not a team that won the Super Bowl, of course. This was a team that lost the AFC. Cha- they didn't even get to the Super Bowl. They lost the AFC championship game. And here we are. You know, 40, whatever, two years later, 43 years later for the two pep rallies, 42 and 43 years later. And the city, I think, understood then it's a big deal to get to the AFC championship game because here we are having not seen an AFC championship game for an NFL team in the city of Houston since then. I mean, for any Oilers, Texans teams, I mean, there was a six-year period where there wasn't one, but... We've had a team of some sort over the last 42 years, except for six of those years, and none of them have been able to get back there. So, you know, you have to appreciate those moments. And that's something that is just totally forgotten in sports these days. There is only one winner every single year. And just because your team doesn't win, it doesn't mean they didn't give it everything that they had. They didn't put in all of their heart. They didn't care about winning. And, it's just you can't express what it means to have a city and a team that were that connected and loved each other. There was this mutual admiration for them. And there was just a bond that I you can't explain to anybody 
unless you were there. It's just so hard to explain. Well, you know, and I think too, Robert, that one of the reasons of the successes of those pep rallies is when you think about how starved the city of Houston was for a winner of any kind, you know, the, the Rockets had kind of flirted with the playoffs a year or two before, you know, they, they, they might've gone to the championship, but they fell short, but you got to remember the Astros hadn't made the playoffs yet. They didn't do that until 1980. So they hadn't been there. You know, and the Oilers, well, they won the AFL championship, you know, in the early 60s, but that wasn't the NFL. So that's really about it. And, you know, we didn't even have five slam a jamma then. So when you think about how starved the city was for a winner and when they finally thought that there was a shot, I, I think that had something to do with it. But you're right. They're, they're just we, we could talk about this all day and probably never fully explain the bond and the whole love you blue thing that caught fire in the city of Houston. Yeah. The Rockets did not make a final until 80, 81. So this was before they had made any of their runs to finals. They made it in 80, 81 right. and they made it in 86, the 80, 81 season and 86 season. They get back to the finals. Uh, the Cougars had made a final four. I guess that's the closest thing. I mean, if you go back, if you want right. to count the AFL and the Oilers winning the championships back then, I guess you can. I mean, it, you know, I, it wasn't the thing that it is now. And of course, once it became the NFL and you're having the best team from, you know, the American football conference going up against the national football conference in the late sixties, when that starts up and, and Joe Namath and everything like that, then it becomes, I think the thing that we think of today, but you know, the Cougars getting to those final fours in the late sixties, they, they got to two final fours, and then UCLA just crushed them. I mean, we always talk about the, the the game of the century where the Cougars barely won. That was earlier in the season. But, Stephen, when they got to the Final Four those two times, they got killed. Those, those, those Oilers teams, they get killed the first time, which, you know, you would think the second time around, okay, you got to the same point, you got beat by the same team in a much more devastating fashion. How could you be excited about it? for a second year in a row. And there were more people in the building the second year. You heard Pastorini talking about it. There were more people the second year than there were the first year. Yeah, that was what was so amazing. And I think it just solidified once and for all, Robert, that Houston is a football city. And, you know, when the Oilers left and how angry people were, you know, they were more angry at Bud Adams, obviously, because he's the one who started that whole ball rolling. You just think about what that team has been through from you know, starting with the Love You Blue, you know, and and then you go to the the whole Buffalo humiliation, and then several years after that, they announced they're leaving. I mean, man, you talk about a, a range of emotions that <laughs> that Houston football fans have gone through. You know, and now you have the Texans. They they did get a football team back. You have the Texans, but talk about a stark difference between how the fans feel about the Texans as to how they felt about the Oilers back then. I mean, it's not even close. My two favorite purchases in 2020 was a baseball cap that was a Houston Oilers baseball cap. And I also purchased a, a stocking for my head to keep me warm shooting high school football uh, in the colder, in the colder conditions like we've had the last month or so. But those were my two favorite purchases. And when I look at them, I don't see the Oilers of the late eighties and early nineties and the, the bills come back that we mentioned earlier, or the Broncos, the, 
Chiefs playoff games that were really sad. I look at them and I get emotional when I see those because I think immediately of the Levy Blue teams. That's what comes back to me. And there's 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 such a deep feeling about those teams that um, there's just you just can't have in sports anymore. I'm afraid, and and it's it's just it's incredible. I I, I thought we were going to have it a little bit with the Astros, and the cheating scandal kind of robbed it. Yeah, the Astros probably came the closest, I'd say. If you're, if you're going to try to compare with what the Oilers did, the Astros came the closest because they actually did win the World Series. And then, unfortunately, you know, to have that shatter. I mean, it's almost as if Houston is just becoming used to shattered dreams because the Pittsburgh Steelers shattered the Oilers' dreams of even getting to the Super Bowl, <laughs> much less winning it for two straight years. And then when the Astros did win a championship, their dreams got shattered. So... And this has got to stop, Robert. We just we've we've got to move forward and get a Houston team to win a championship, untainted. Nobody can talk about it except in a positive way. That's what we need to strive for. Yeah, well, nobody can talk about Clutch City. Uh, t- too bad, so sad. We we won those two. I don't care. That's right. If Michael Jordan was playing tiddlywinks, I don't give a damn. You know, we won those, and that's all that matters. Uh, before we close it out, just want to remind everybody to messages through Twitter or Facebook or email info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. We love to hear from you. Don't forget, we got a really good Throwback Thursday coming up. So you're going to want to listen to that one. In the meantime, stay healthy and safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.